Section 13 of Hunger by Knut Thompson. Translated by George Egerton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 4 Continued. A few days passed over. I still associated with the family below, for it was too cold in the anteroom where there was no stove. I slept too at night on the floor of the room. The strange sailor continued to lodge in my room and did not seem like moving very quickly. At noon, too, my landlady came in and related how he had paid her a month in advance, and besides, he was going to take a first mate's examination before leaving. That was why he was staying in town. I stood and listened to this, and understood that my room was lost to me forever. I went out to the anteroom and sat down. If I were lucky enough to get anything written, it would have perforce to be here where it was quiet. It was no longer the allegory that occupied me. I had got a new idea, a perfectly splendid plot. I would compose a one-act drama, The Sign of the Cross, subject taken from the Middle Ages. I had especially thought out everything in connection with the principal characters, a magnificently fanatical harlot who had sinned in the temple not from weakness or desire, but for hate against heaven, sinner right at the foot of the altar, with the altar-cloth under her head, just out of delicious contempt for heaven. I grew more and more obsessed by this creation as the hours went on. She stood at last palpably, visibly embodied before my eyes, and was exactly as I wished her to appear. Her body was to be deformed and repulsive tall, very lean, and rather dark, and when she walked, her long limbs should gleam through her draperies at every stride she took. She was also to have large, outstanding ears. Curtly, she was nothing for the eye to dwell upon, barely endurable to look at. What interested me in her was her wonderful shamelessness, the desperately full measure of calculated sin which she had committed. She really occupied me too much. My brain was absolutely inflated by the singular monstrosity of a creature, and I worked for two hours, without a pause, at my drama. When I had finished half a score of pages, perhaps twelve, often with much effort, at times with long intervals, in which I wrote in vain and had to tear the page in two, I became tired, quite stiff with cold and fatigue, and I arose and went out into the street. For the last half-hour, too, I had been disturbed by the crying of the children inside the family room, so that I could not, in any case, have written any more just then. So I took a long time up over Drammensvien, and stayed away till the evening, pondering incessantly as I walked along, as to how I would continue my drama. Before I came home in the evening of this day, the following happened. I stood outside a shoemaker's shop, far down in Karl Johann Street, almost at the railway square. God knows why I stood just outside this shoemaker's shop. I looked into the window as I stood there, but did not, by the way, remember that I needed shoes then. My thoughts were far away in other parts of the world. A swarm of people talking together passed behind my back, and I heard nothing of what was said. Then a voice greeted me loudly. Good evening. 
It was Missy who bade me good evening. I answered at random. I looked at him, too, for a while, before I recognized him. "'Well, how are you getting along?' he inquired. "'Oh, always well, as usual.' "'By the way, tell me,' said he. "'Are you, then, still with Christie?' "'Christie? I thought you once said you were bookkeeper at Christie's. "'Ah, yes, no, that is done with. It was impossible to get along with that fellow. That came to an end very quickly of its own accord. "'Why so? Well, I happened to make a misentry one day, and so—' A false entry, eh? False entry. There stood Missy, and asked me straight in the face if I had done this thing. He even asked eagerly, and evidently with much interest. I looked at him, felt deeply insulted, and made no reply. Yes, well, Lord, that might happen to the best fellow, he said, as if to console me. He still believed I had made a false entry designedly. "'What is that, yes, well, Lord, indeed might happen to the best fellow?' I inquired. "'To do that, listen, my good man, do you stand there and really believe that I could for a moment be guilty of such a mean trick as that? I—' "'But, my dear fellow, I thought I heard you distinctly say that.' "'No, I said that I had made a misentry once, a bagatelle, if you want to know. A false date on a letter, a single stroke of the pen wrong, that was my whole crime.' No, God be praised. I can tell right from wrong yet a while. How would it fare with me if I were into the bargain to sully my honor? It is simply my sense of honor that keeps me afloat now. But it is strong enough, too, at least. It has kept me up to date. I threw back my head, turned away from Missy, and looked down the street. My eyes rested on a red dress that came towards us, on a woman at a man's side. If I had not had this conversation with Missy, I would not have been hurt by his coarse suspicion, and I would not have given this toss of my head as I turned away in offense. And so perhaps this red dress would have passed me without my having noticed it. And at bottom, what did it concern me? What was it to me if it were the dress of the Honorable Miss Nagel, the lady-in-waiting? Missy stood and talked, and I tried to make good his mistake again. I did not listen to him at all. I stood the whole time and stared at the red dress that was coming nearer up the street, and a stir thrilled through my breast, a gliding, delicate dart. I whispered in thought, without moving my lips, Yahali! Now Missy turned round also, and noticed the two, the lady and the man with her, raised his hat to them, and followed them with his eyes. I did not raise my hat or perhaps I did unconsciously. The red dress glided up Carl Johann and disappeared. "'Who was that with her?' asked Missy. "'The Duke, didn't you see? The so-called Duke. Did you know the lady?' "'Yes, in a sort of way. Didn't you know her?' "'No,' I replied. "'It appears to me you saluted profoundly enough.' "'Did I?' "'Ha, ha! Perhaps you didn't,' said Missy. Well, that is odd. Why, it was only you she looked at, too, the whole time. When did you get to know her? I asked. He did not really know her. It dated from an evening in autumn. It was late. They were three jovial souls together. They came out late from the Grand, 
and met this being going along alone past Kammermeyer's, and they addressed her. At first she answered rebuffingly, but one of the jovial spirits, a man who neither feared fire nor water, asked her right to her face if he might not have the civilized enjoyment of accompanying her home. He would, by the Lord, not hurt a hair on her head, as the saying goes. Only go with her to the door, reassure himself that she reached home in safety, otherwise he could not rest all night. He talked incessantly as they went along, hit upon one thing or another, dubbed himself Valdemar Otterdag, and represented himself as a photographer. At last she was obliged to laugh at this merry soul who refused to be rebuffed by her coldness, and it finally ended by his going with her. Indeed did it, and what came of it? I inquired, and I held my breath for his reply. Came of it? Oh, stop there, there is the lady in question. We both kept silent a moment, both Missy and I. Well, I'm hanged. Was that the Duke? So that's what he looks like, he added reflectively. Well, if she is in contact with that fellow, well then, I wouldn't like to answer for her. I still kept silent. Yes, of course the Duke would make the pace with her. Well, what odds? How did it concern me? I bade her good day with all her wiles. A good day I bade her, and I tried to console myself by thinking the worst thoughts about her, took a downright pleasure in dragging her through the mire. It only annoyed me to think that I had doffed my hat to the pair, if I really had done so. Why should I raise my hat to such people? I did not care for her any longer, certainly not. She was no longer in the very slightest degree lovely to me. She had fallen off. Ah, the devil knows how soiled I found her. It might easily have been the case that it was only me she looked at. I was not in the least astounded at that. It might be regret that began to stir in her. But that was no concern for me to go and lower myself and salute like a fool, especially when she had become so seriously besmirched of late. The Duke was welcome to her. I wish him joy. The day might come when I would just take into my head to pass her haughtily by, without glancing once towards her. Ay, it might happen that I would venture to do this, even if she were to gaze straight into my eyes and have a blood-red gown on into the bargain. It might very easily happen, ha, ha! That would be a triumph. If I knew myself aright, I was quite capable of completing my drama during the course of the night, and, before eight days had flown, I would have brought this young woman to her knees, with all her charms, ha, ha, with all her charms. Goodbye, I muttered shortly. But Missy held me back, he queried. But what do you do all day now? Do? I write, naturally. What else should I do? Is it not that I live by? For the moment I am working at a great drama, The Sign of the Cross, theme taken from the Middle Ages. By Jove! exclaimed Missy seriously. Well, if you succeed with that, why— I have no great anxiety on that score, I replied. In eight days' time or so, I think you and all the folks will have heard a little more of me. With that I left him. When I got home, I applied at once to my landlady, and requested a lamp. 
It was of the utmost importance to me to get this lamp. I would not go to bed tonight. My drama was raging in my brain, and I hoped so surely to be able to write a good portion of it before morning. I put forward my request very humbly to her, as I had noticed that she made a dissatisfied face on my re-entering the sitting-room. I said that I had almost completed a remarkable drama. Only a couple of scenes were waiting, and I hinted that it might be produced in some theatre or another in no time, if she would only just render me this great service now. But Madame had no lamp. She considered a bit, but could not call to mind that she had a lamp in any place. If I liked to wait until twelve o'clock, I might perhaps get the kitchen lamp. Why didn't I buy myself a candle? I held my tongue. I hadn't a farthing to buy a candle, and knew that right well. Of course I was foiled again. The servant girl sat inside with us, simply sat in the sitting-room, and was not in the kitchen at all, so that the lamp up there was not even lit, and I stood and thought over this, but said no more. Suddenly the girl remarked to me, I thought I saw you come out of the palace a while ago. Were you at a dinner party? And she laughed loudly at this jest. I sat down, took out my papers, and attempted to write something here in the meantime. I held the paper on my knees and gazed persistently at the floor to avoid being distracted by anything. But it helped not a whit. Nothing helped me. I got no farther. The landlady's two little girls came in and made a row with the cat, a queer, sick cat that had scarcely a hair on it. They blew into its eyes until water sprang out of them and trickled down its nose. The landlord and a couple of others sat at a table and played saint et une. The wife alone was busy as ever and sat and sewed at some garment. She saw well that I could not write anything in the midst of all this disturbance but she troubled herself no more about me. She even smiled when the servant-girl asked me if I had been out to dine. The whole household had become hostile towards me. It was as if I only needed disgrace of being obliged to resign my room to a stranger, to be treated as a man of no account. Even the servant, a little brown-eyed street wench, with a big fringe over her forehead and a perfectly flat bosom, poked fun at me in the evening when I got my ration of bread and butter. She inquired perpetually where, then, was I in the habit of dining, as she had never seen me picking my teeth outside the grand. It was clear that she was aware of my wretched circumstances, and took pleasure in letting me know of it. I fall suddenly into thought over all this, and am not able to find a solitary speech for my drama. Time upon time I seek in vain. A strange buzzing begins inside my head, and I give it up. I thrust the papers into my pocket and look up. The girl is sitting straight opposite me. I see her. Look at her narrow back and drooping shoulders that are not yet fully developed. What business was it of hers to fly at me? Even supposing I did come out of the palace, what then? Did it harm her in any way? She had laughed insolently in the past few days at me, when I was a bit awkward and stumbled on the stairs, or caught fast on a nail and tore my coat. 
It was not later than yesterday that she had gathered up my rough copy that I had thrown aside in the anteroom, stolen these rejected fragments of my drama and read them aloud in the room here, made fun of them in everyone's hearing just to amuse herself at my expense. I had never molested her in any way, and could not recall that I had ever asked her to do me a service. On the contrary, I made up my own bed on the floor of the anteroom myself, in order not to give her any trouble with it. She made fun of me, too, because my hair fell out. Hair lay and floated about in the basin I washed in the mornings, and she made merry over it. Then my shoes, too, had grown rather shabby of late, particularly the one that had been run over by the bread-van, and she found subject for jesting in them. "'God bless you and your shoes,' said she, looking at them. "'They are as wide as a dog's house.' And she was right. They were trodden out. But then I couldn't procure myself any others just at present. Whilst I sit and call all this to mind, and marvel over the evident malice of the servant, the little girls have begun to tease the old man over in the bed. They are jumping around him, fully bent on this diversion. They both found a straw, which they poked into his ears. I looked on this for a while, and refrained from interfering. The old fellow did not move a finger to defend himself. He only looked at his tormentors with furious eyes each time they prodded him, and jerked his head to escape when the straws were already in his ears. I got more and more irritated at this sight, and could not keep my eyes away from it. The father looked up from his cards, and laughed at the youngsters. He also drew the attention of his comrades at play to what was going on. Why didn't the old fellow move? Why didn't he fling the children aside with his arms? I took a stride, and approached the bed. "'Let them alone! Let them alone! He is paralyzed!' called the landlord. And out of fear to be shown the door for the night, simply out of fear of rousing the man's displeasure by interfering with this scene, I stepped back silently to my old place and kept myself quiet. Why should I risk my lodging at my portion of bread and butter by poking my nose into the family squabbles? No idiotic pranks for the sake of a half-dying old man and I stood and felt as delightfully hard as a flint. The little urchins did not cease their plaguing. It amused them that the old chap could not hold his head quiet, and they aimed at his eyes and nostrils. He stared at them with a ludicrous expression. He said nothing and could not stir his arms. Suddenly he raised the upper part of his body a little and spat in the face of one of the little girls drew himself up again and spat at the other, but did not reach her. I stood and looked on, saw that the landlord flung the cards on the table at which he sat, and sprang over towards the bed. His face was flushed, and he shouted, "'Will you sit and spit right into people's eyes, you old boar?' "'But, good Lord, he got no peace from them,' I cried, beside myself." But all the time I stood in fear of being turned out, and I certainly did not utter my protest with any particular force. I only trembled over my whole body with irritation. He turned towards me and said, "'Eh, hey, listen to him, then. What the devil is it to you? You just keep your tongue in your jaw, you. Just mark what I tell you. 
will serve you best. But now the wife's voice made itself heard, and the house was filled with scolding and railing. May God help me, but I think you are mad or possessed, the whole pack of you, she shrieked. If you want to stay here, you'll have to be quiet, both of you. Humph! It isn't enough that one is to keep open house and food for vermin, but one is to have sparring and rowing and the devil's own to-do in the sitting-room as well. But I won't have any more of it, not if I know it. Shh! Hold your tongues, you brats there, and wipe your noses, too. If you don't, I'll come and do it. I never saw the like of such people. Here they walk in out of the street, without even a penny to buy flea-powder, and begin to kick up rows in the middle of the night and quarrel with people who own the house. I don't mean to have any more of it. Do you understand that? And you can go your way, everyone who doesn't belong home here. I am going to have peace in my own quarters. I am. I said nothing. I never opened my mouth once. I sat down next to the door and listened to the noise. They all screamed together, even the children and the girl who wanted to explain how the whole disturbance commenced. If I only kept quiet, it would all blow over some time. It would surely not come to the worst if I only did not utter a word, and what word after all could I have to say? Was it not perhaps winter outside, and far advanced into the night besides? Was that a time to strike a blow, and show one could hold one's own? No folly now. So I sat still, and made no attempt to leave the house. I never even blushed at keeping silent, never felt ashamed, although I had almost been shown the door. I stared coolly, case-hardened, at the wall where Christ hung in an oleograph, and held my tongue obstinately during all the landlady's attack. Well, if it is me you want to get quit of, ma'am, there will be nothing in the way as far as I am concerned said one of the card-players as he stood up. The other card-players rose as well. "'No, I didn't mean you, nor you either,' replied the landlady to them. "'If there's any need to, I will show well enough who I mean, if there's the least need to, if I know myself rightly. Oh, it will be shown quick enough who it is.' She talked with pauses, gave me these thrusts at short intervals and spun it out to make it clearer and clearer that it was me she meant. "'Quiet,' said I to myself. "'Only keep quiet.' She had not asked me to go, not expressly, not in plain words. Just no putting on side on my part, no untimely pride. Brave it out. That was really most singular green hair on that Christ in the oleograph. It was not too unlike green grass.' or expressed with exquisite exactitude thick meadow-grass, ha! A perfectly correct remark, unusually thick meadow-grass. A train of fleeting ideas darts at this moment through my head. From green grass to the text, each life is like unto grass that is kindled, from that to the day of judgment, when all will be consumed. Then a little detour down to the earthquake in Lisbon, about which something floated before me in reference to a brass Spanish spittoon, and an ebony pin-handle that I had seen down at Yahali's. Ah, yes, all was transitory, just like grass that was kindled. It all ended in four planks and a winding-sheet. 
winding-sheets to be had from Miss Anderson's on the right of the door. And all this was tossed about in my head during the despairing moment when my landlady was about to thrust me from her door. "'He doesn't hear!' she yelled. "'I tell you, you'll quit this house. Now you know it. I believe God blast me that the man is mad, I do. Now out you go, on the blessed spot, and no more chat about it.' I looked towards the door, not in order to leave, no, certainly not in order to leave. An audacious notion seized me. If there had been a key in the door, I would have turned it and locked myself in with the rest to escape going. I had a perfectly hysterical dread of going out into the streets again. But there was no key in the door. Then, suddenly, my landlord's voice mingled with that of his wife and I stood still with amazement. The same man who had threatened me a little while ago took my part, strangely enough now, he said. No, it won't do to turn folk out at night. Do you know one can be punished for doing that? I didn't know if there was a punishment for that, I couldn't say, but perhaps it was so. And the wife bethought herself quickly, grew quiet, and spoke no more. She placed two pieces of bread and butter before me for supper but I did not touch them, just out of gratitude to the man. So I pretended that I had had a little food in town. When at length I took myself off to the anteroom to go to bed, she came out after me, stopped on the threshold, and said loudly, whilst her unsightly figure seemed to strut out towards me, But this is the last night you sleep here, so now you know it. Yes, yes, I replied. There would perhaps be some way of finding a shelter tomorrow if I tried hard for it. I would surely be able to find some hiding place. For the time being, I would rejoice that I was not obliged to go out tonight. End of section 13